0: So what we'll do today is we're going to talk, this is a part of my research, a continuation of yesterday, talking, remember how we started with a polemical view of Jews and Christians? Today I'm going to delve deeper into non-polemical relationship between Jews and Christians. So this is why we'll read this, and we'll take about an hour, and we'll regroup in an hour, and I'll be around if you have any questions. So you have the English and the Hebrew side by side, and you have some guiding questions, and... That's the hot. So what's the difference between the Yahushalmi and the Babri? I kind of give you the answer in the handout, but let's talk without the handout first. So shorter. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, before we start, let's talk about dates. So the Palestinian Talmud is redacted in the land of Israel. Where was it not, definitely not redacted? In Jerusalem, right? It's called Yushani, it's a misnomer. Shouldn't be uh, understood as such because the, the Jews are not allowed in Jerusalem since after the Kokhba revolt, 135, no longer can enter Jerusalem. They're at, where are they situated mostly?
1: Galilee.
0: In the Galilee. Where in Galilee that's an interesting where in Galilee was the, the Palestinian Talmud was that's an interesting question. Tiberia, Kesalia, different parts of the Yerushalmi, that's a whole thing. So, But the more accurate way to call the Talmud that was acted in Palestine is the Palestinian Talmud rather than the Yerushalmi or Jerusalem Talmud. Though, again, like the, you know, the Tikva Eretz Sirum Jerusalem. Jerusalem can be a name for all of Israel and then it's fine. But so long as you understand that it wasn't redacted in, Pal- in Jerusalem. Okay, so the Palestinian Talmud is redacted in the land of Israel. When? No, so so we no. Rabinic, no. L- let's talk for a second I'm yeah. sorry if it's, it's obvious to some of you but let's just do a, 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 a timeline the, the the rabbinic literature is divided in two parts, there's the early period, that's called the Tanaitic period, and that's stuff uh, such as the Mishnah, the Tosefta and the legal Midoshim and that's redacted around the beginning of the 3rd century and covers within it Material going back to second century, second sorry, not second century, second temple period. How far back does it go? How ancient are the tradition? That's an interesting question. But the rabbis who are quoted within those sources, such as the Mishnah, are from the end of the, the second temple period. So we're talking about first, second century C.E. Right? The temple has been destroyed in the year 70, and we have a few rabbis who lived at the end of that period. So first and second century C.E. And the Mishnah, which is the first rabbinic composition that we have, is redacted around the year uh, 212 or eleven, right? Uh, uh, we're reading a, a lot of Shira go on. So beginning of the 3rd century. That's the Tanaitic period. That's the early period. Then we move to the 2nd rabbinic period, and that's the Amoraic period that includes the Babylonian Talmud, the Palestinian Talmud and later, some of the later Midrash HaGadah Midrash HaGadah goes all the way to medieval time but the earliest ones such as Vayikra Rabbah, Leviticus Rabbah and Genesis Rabbah goes to the Amorite period so, now Amorite period starts in the 3rd century but the Palestinian Talmud is one of the earliest compositions from that period that is being redacted see my face? this is all conjecture, we don't know But something around, I don't know, end of the fourth century, something like that. We don't know. It's the second half of the fourth century, probably. That's the Ushanah, that's the Palestinian Talmud. When we go to the Babylonian Talmud, my face becomes even more perplexed because we don't know. It's obviously, so again, when I say redacted, stop for a second, when I say redacted in the fourth century, it means that it has tradition within it up to the 4th century, but of course it has Tanaitic tradition going back maybe earlier than that. So it has a lot of tradition, but it was redacted or finalized around the 4th century. right? But the people who work at that time period are called the Omobai, and they are living in the 3rd and 4th century. That's Palestinian Talmud. When you move to the Babylonian Talmud, look at your map. You have a map at the end of your Second page at the bottom. You have a map. It's no. uh, a of your, No. No oh, Yeah, page. the new one, the second page. Sorry. See on the bottom? I have a colored one. Yeah, yeah, I have a colored one, the one I used yesterday. See the colored one? So yours is not colored. but So this is a map of the ancient world around the time of Amoy. And we're talking about, I can't see the colors so well, but the Persian empire is lighter, right? And the uh, Roman Empire, this is, uh, you can see how it's supposed to look. This is uh, um, purplish kind of a thing. That's the Roman Empire. We talked about it a little bit yesterday. So, Palestine, which is here, is uh, the more, one of the most eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. Right? And, and, and in, as we talked about yesterday, a gateway to North Africa. So, a very, very important passage. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud on the contrary, is actually situated between two rivers that flow into the Persian Gulf. Uh, that's called the uh, Prat and that's in English, the Euphrates and the uh, Tigris. Tiberi- I'm sorry, yeah. So Prat and if you don't mind, I'll use the Hebrew words for that, easier for me. Uh, and those two spill into the Persian Gulf. And in between those two rivers, there's a narrow area, and this is where the Jews live. Should have. We'll talk about it in a second, the other map. Okay. So, in between those two uh, rivers is the Jewish settlement, the what's called Jewish Babylonia, and this is where the Jewish community is being exiled during Second Temple period. This is this is. They don't. Some of them see themselves as going back to the first exile of the first temple that never came back and stayed on the river of Babylon where we sat and you know and, and cried. We don't exactly know because we don't have any sources from the Tanaitic period from the from the Babylonian Jewry. We start hearing about them when Rav, the student of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who is the editor of the Mishnah decides to go to Babylonia because he can't find work in Israel. It's called, uh, in Israel, we speak to talk about the escape of the mind's brain drain. Do you have your the term? So nothing new about that. The economy was not that great for academics in Palestine in the third century. And he decides to go to Babylonia. And that's the first we hear of this seriously. So Rav, or his longer name Rav Abba, but he's so known. So we just call him Rav and everyone know what we're talking about. So Rav goes to Babylonia. And because he goes, probably there is something there in the Jewish community, but he's one of the first in the first sages of that period to begin. And from that time on, from the beginning of the 3rd century, we have two centers. If up until then we only heard and we have the Mishnah, the Tusekta, and the Nishim are all from Palestine, starting from the 4th, so starting from the 3rd century, we have two centers. One in the Persian Empire, in between the river, and one in Palestine. And these two centers produce the two Talmuds. And they talk to each other? Oh, good question. So we have a sense of the ancient world as being very primitive and very, and oh, how did they cook? I want this experiment. How much do you, How long do you think a mail carrier, uh, for a mail to get from Palestine to Babylon? How long? Mm, months. Months. Well, three months. Less than two weeks. Oh my and which is God. I can guarantee you here in America you have a good mail system so far, in Israel it has collapsed and it takes me much longer than it did in the ancient world to get a letter from the United States uh, if you lived in Israel you would know uh, it's awful so I always say really don't forget the Roman Empire what they did best were roads the entire road system was a Roman invention, a huge improvement in the ancient world and there's incredible roads and they go back and forth and That's we actually exactly have... This ...subject of this kind uh, of, of this. Yes, so we'll talk. So this is one of the examples. That the fact <laughs> that there, there is very often shared, actually almost always, shared tradition between Babylonian and Palestinian uh, sources. And they quote each other. They quote rabbis, they quote tradition. They might quote entire suya entire passages entire stories. So they are very much aware. We know of rabbis who actually went back and forth. They're called the Nechute. That's a rabbi that their whole purpose was to go from one place to another with those traditions. Probably doing some commerce in between. But then also they're doing the transmitting traditions. They're called the Nechute. Those who go down. Meaning go down from Palestine to Babylon and back. So very close proximity between the two but very different. Why is it different? Because the Babylonian Talmud, and here I go back to my puzzlement, when when was the Babylonian Talmud redacted? It was redacted much later than the Palestinian Talmud. How much later? That's a question. Some scholars put it in the 5th century and some scholars go back, go further all the way to the Islamic conquest in the 7th century. So when was the Babylonian Talmud redacted? I don't know. But because I do Jewish-Christian interaction, I'm squarely in the camp that goes late. Because I see a lot of Christian newer,
1: stuff. Is that a newer conclusion? In other words, when I was in rabbinical school, they said 5th the century. century. Yeah. So now they're saying, now they've Who's got they?
0: more... Dollars. Scholars. some, scholars. Scholars. some scholars. scholars me included yeah. Push it back yeah. just yeah, put, I don't know if, if you know uh, Halivni, he yeah. actually that's published true. an article recently saying, he's not very well yeah. now but recently he published an article that, said, that pushes it back to the 8th century wow. this, is, this is not very acceptable but I think we can we can, we can I think that's we can true. accept a later date but that's just me, you don't have to accept my word for it but for my research I'm leaning towards later dating but in any case, no matter how you look at it, the Babylonian Talmud had at least 100 or 150 years more than the Palestinian Talmud to redact, rework, restructure traditions that are found in the Palestinian Talmud. And that's very noticeable in stories such as the one we've looked at. Almost always, like really in a very, very high percentage. When you look and compare traditions from the Palestinian Talmud to the Babylonian Talmud, you'll find the Babylonian Talmud almost, always, longer, much longer. Not just longer, but also much more reworked, much more redacted, and much more comprehensible. If you're trying to learn the Yerushalmi al you would see that the Ushami is much more laconic much more enigmatic, it's very hard to understand the, the Aramaic also is harder, but we also laugh, because you know who won big time in the history of reception? We were called the, the people of the book because the Quran calls us that because of the, the Bible, but the real book that influenced the Jewish people, no doubt much, 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 much more significantly, is the Babylonian Talmud, like no comparison to any other book in Jewish history, so the Babylonian Talmud. So with the Babylonian Talmud we actually have a history of tr- interpretation going back to the time of its redaction. We have the Unaitic interpretation and then the Rishonim and then the Nachonim and we, that helps us from people who live closer to the editing er- of the tradition to understand what it says. We don't have that on the Palestinian Talmud. There's no Rashi on the Palestinian Talmud. If you ever tried to read the Talmud without Rashi, you would know how difficult it is, the Babylonian Talmud. Now imagine the Palestinian Talmud. So we actually don't have that. The first people who do a systematic interpretation of the Ushami, 16th century. So, and so they're, they make do with what they can, and they're using a lot of the Bami to understand. But the Ushami is a huge minefield of tradition, much harder to understand. This is one example. When I teach, you know, my students and I try to explain the differences between the Bhagavad Gita me, mean, I tend to use stories because it's easier to use. And uh, and this is one example. I don't have. Oh, I do. Uh, the one day earlier. Okay. Um, yes. Just give us. I, I don't know. Well, we're all here to study the Judaism and Christianity,
1: and I know that's your field. So maybe people know this already. But what? How is um, like what the Jesus and the first Christians understood of all this stuff, and then in other words. What do Christians understand about this Talmud and this law and this kind of thing? Like,
0: did they, Jesus, who was Jewish, understand anything about? So, time-wise, Jesus lived in the first century C. We don't have any rabbinic corpus from that time period. The first we have is the Mishnah, which is the beginning of the third century. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Actually, Jesus is a really, Jesus tradition are a really good source for us scholars to learn about Judaism because he goes to synagogue, he talks to Pharisees, he, so he's a good source for us, not the other way around, right? Uh, so he didn't know the Mishnah, he didn't know the Talmud. What did he know about Jewish Halakha? That's an interesting uh, question. We actually can use the New Testament to ask those kinds of questions, and some scholars do that. But that's a whole different, so in terms of, there's a different question about how much Christian contemporary Christians in the 4th, 5th, 6th century knew about Judaism? And that's a, that's a, that's a different question. My book is the other one. How much Judaism knew about christianity But in any case, it goes both ways. But it's a good question. That's the question we're asking, right? How much did Jews and Christians know about each other? And how much did they understand and how much they had in common? That's the whole point of my talk yesterday and today. Yes? Just in shock, do you assume
1: that, that Babylonian Amorim knew the Palestinian tongue
0: as is, as I know it? That's a good question. Scholars do not assume that. There's one scholar who do, which is Alisa Gray. Oh, sorry. The question was, did the Babylonian Talmud know the Palestinian Talmud? Did they have a volume on the shelf like we do of the Palestinian Talmud? Scholars don't assume that. There's one scholar, Alissa Gray, she's his PhD advisor at HUC, and she wrote a book focusing on one tractate. Uh, and she tries to show that in certain places we can actually show that the Babi had the entire subya of the Ushami as is, and he's working off of it. She's one scholar who said that. Her theory is a little bit uh, under debate. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I'm having a hard time assuming that they do the whole thing. But very close to what we have, I don't have a problem with that so much. But it depends. I think it depends where and which I thought you just
1: said that they had great roles and they communicated all the time. Tradition.
0: The question is, do they know the entire volume? So is it someone in the third century says something in Palestine, and then it gets transmitted into building and they're like, "Ooh, this guy said that. What do we think about that?" This, yes, it happens all the time. The question is, it is an entire sugya where you have a question and an answer and then a debate and a conclusion. And then, is this entire thing is transmitted to Babylonia. That's an interesting question. You're asking huge questions that in research we haven't been able to answer yet. So, okay. Now let's get back to Rashi. So Rashi's story is a good example to talk about the relationship about the Yerushani and scholars have done that. Let's read the stories. By the way, uh, those of you with keen eyes and, and, and Aramaic or Hebrew knowledge, notice that I only translated the first half of the story, not the second half. The second half received much more attention in scholarly uh, occupation because it deals with the purification of Kibera, or some kind of a city with uh, a dead impurity. I can talk a little bit about this if you want, but this is not the focus, is not going to be the focus of my talk. I actually want to talk about the first half, the K story. And that has received less attention in scholarship. And Uh, This is what I I try to uh, do in my book and I'm going to try to do it with you today. But in any case, let's read the story. So we start with the Eushami. Let's look first, the first thing you see when you see the the comparison in the chart. As we see, the first thing you see is the Iwushani is much shorter, right? Let's read this, and then you'll tell me what's the di- what's the other difference between the stories. Yes. These messages are
1: continuous. Yes. I
0: just it's me. I I divide them to be parallel, but they are continuous in the story. Okay. This chart. You don't have the first page. There we go. There were two handouts. The yes. okay, we not the chart. Oh, sorry. Uh, table? parallel columns. How do you call the construction? A table? No, not columns. Okay, sorry. not Okay, so what's a chart? That's a graph? Graph. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry, uh, okay. In any case, what, what does your word say when you want to add one of those? Add a. Add a table? You do columns or, or table. Add a table. The is almost okay. Okay. Okay, so, uh, let's read the story. I'm reading the Palestinian Talmud first. Uh, for 13 years, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which I'm going to actually use a shorthand, I'm going to use a shorthand for him instead of saying Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, I'm going to say Rashi. That's it's shorter. So, uh, for 13 years, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai lived hidden, in a cave of caribs of teruma. That's a weird sentence. We don't know what it means. It never appears anywhere else. Yes? Is is he a colonist? He's not. Not that we know of. But he lives in a cave of Caribs of Terumah. We don't know what it means. I really have nothing to say more about this than that there is a cave of Tirumah. I tried to suggest in my book that there are a tradition about uh, truma, like you know, a priest offering being collected and stashed in some kinds of caves. That might be it. Why can't he eat it? Was he a koen and we don't know about it? Did he think he was entitled to do that? Oh. You the door? Oh. Okay. Well, so, we don't know anything. It doesn't say that he ate it. We just say that he was hidden in that cave. Right? Chauvim mentioned. You don't know what Chauv is, right? I was teaching it. No. I was teaching this to my uh, Christian studies and, and they're like, what is a carob? I'm like, everyone who, knows, who lives in Israel knows what a Chauv is. It, it looks like a, like a dried banana, very hard and black, and it's, it, it's very, very good for you apparently and you can make uh, fake chocolate spreading that's supposed to be healthier for you. It's really not great. But in any case, apparently it's very healthy. It has a lot of proteins in it, etc. Okay. So you listen to the what? Near there, grows near the camera. We the don't know. Where? Again, I have no more information okay. besides. Okay. No one knows what it is. Really, literally. You're, this is typical Yerushalmi, just using this kind of a thing. Assuming we don't. Know. Okay, so we have two contexts. This is in the context of Shviti <inaudible> of of of. Uh, uh, yeah. What's the question? Oh, repeat the question. She was asking about the, the context of the stories. Uh, so I think Shabbat is in the context of. Oh, yeah. The, in, the continuation of the stories is an old man with two branches for Shabbat. So that's the continuation. I, the two, I don't remember specifically what the context that it's not. But uh in Shabbat as well. But it, so
1: I mean what well, do they come with the story so no. they
0: do that often when they have like a, a random, you know, connection that they find to something. In Shabbat some yes.
1: it's just the origin of the name of
0: <laughs> Yehuda ben oh. No, no, Rosh uh, Rosh BeKol that's right. Oh, they mentioned. that's right. In, in Shabbat they mention the name of uh, Yehuda. That's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, and then they mention Yehuda, they're like, oh, why was he called Rosh Medabrim? Oh, and then they bring this story.
1: Okay.
0: But it, I, we didn't. I, I, I honestly don't remember it anymore. Okay. It's been a while since I've looked at the context. That's a good question, though. Yeah. I, also very important a lot of the time, but a lot of the time the Talmud is very, associative and just brain stories, but it's a good question. Okay, so he sits in a, in a carib, uh, uh, cave and he stayed there until his body became afflicted with rust spots He became rusty, literally became rusty. Probably mean that he was suffering horribly from, you know, not exposure to sun and the dust and everything. No, I'm not a lot more than that. At the end of 13 years, he said, shouldn't I go out to see what has happened in the world? So after 13 years, he said, shouldn't I go out? So we don't know why he went into the cave according to the and Talmud, right? We do know that in order to get out, he wants to know what's happening in the world. So because of that, we can assume that he's hiding from something and wants to know if things have changed. We don't have that information in the Palestinian Talmud, right? We don't know why he's hating. Could he be meditating during that concert? No, but your next question should be.
1: <laughs>
0: ah, wonderful! So we'll talk about that. So he wants to know what happens in the world, and then in a second we'll see why he comes back. But what else do we know about Rashbi? When did Rashbi live? So don't forget, we're reading this on the Palestinian Talmud again, redacted around the 4th century. But when did Rashbi himself live? <inaudible> <inaudible> Not for later than then? He was a student of who? He was a student of Rabbi Akiva. And so around the Barqofa Revolt, so we're talking about 135, right? So that kind of a little bit makes sense, right? Now look at my, in my handout, my second handout, and you can see Above the in the second page above the the map of the world, you see actually uh, a depiction of. Take me a while for okay. So we found we actually found from the time of Kochba caves that were used for the revolt. So the revolt against the Roman, we actually know now, was not a spontaneous one. It was very well planned. The reason we know that it was very well planned is because we found tens, tens of uh, uh, caves, and not just caves, but a um, uh, clusters of caves connected in, uh, with tunnels. So you see, that, you see this is a cluster of caves that is connected by uh, um, uh, tunnels and entrances, different entrances, underground, they were dug and, and, and filled with supplies for the rebels against the Romans. It's actually kind of cool. You can go, there's an entire section we can actually go. I took the kids out just before Lelicetus, so they'll sleep before Lelicetus. We took them to one of the caves. They go back and forth ten times, and then they go to sleep before Lelicetus. It's really perfect for that. But in any case, you can go and, and visit. There are tens of them all around in the area in, in the Judean uh, uh, mountains and so we know that caves during the Balkochva revolt was a thing, we actually have them and we know that Lashbi lived in the Balkochva era so that might be connected but notice mm. that the Ushami the, the, the doesn't mention the word Balkochva, doesn't mention the word rebellion doesn't mention the word or him he, he, you know, uh, uh, fighting or hiding Sorry, my... Hi, fighting or hiding or doing anything rebellious we don't have that information but I'm just Throwing it out there that he lived in that time period and we know we have caves there? Okay. Now, so he sits in the cave and says, shouldn't I see what has happened in the world? And then he went out and sat at the mouth of the cave. And he saw a certain hunter trapping birds. When he would hear an echo, actually it's a heavenly voice, saying, pardon, but the word that's used in the Hebrew is actually a Latin word, dimitio. That's dismiss, right? That's your English word, comes from the Latin, which means dismiss and the birds escape. So he sees a bird hunter and he has all his traps and he's trying to, to trap birds. And the, the the bird hunter doesn't, but Rashbi looks at it and he hears the heavenly voice of the bird hunter, doesn't, and the heavenly voice says, dismiss you, and then like the birds manage to escape and. Like, you know, the cartoons where there's like a lone uh, feather, like remains in the trap, right? That's what you couldn't imagine. So he hears the heavenly voice, but the trap doesn't. So what does Lashby learn from that? He says, Oh, we, even without intervention in heaven, even a bird does not perish, all the more so human beings. What does he learn from that? It. Okay. That if
1: someone is going to
0: kill him, it's not going to be the wrong. No. No. It could be the Romans, but... But only all these gods. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what... It's a very deterministic kind of way, right? It doesn't matter what we do. God will decide whether we'll get killed or not. So hiding in caves doesn't matter so much. So why should you hide? If you're meant to die, you're meant to die. God decides that for you. And then the story says, when he saw that the difficulties had diminished, he said, let me go down and visit back in Tiberias. Now notice something weird. Why does Lashby decide to go out of the cave? It's a skin question. I thought it was the
1: skin question. It's
0: what? His skin, he was sick, his skin. Yeah, but that's not why the, 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 the story no, 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 is
1: From the previous part, it seems that because he realized that when, when it's time to can it will come. But from the second part, it seems that he, he checked the historical situation. Perfect.
0: There's something weird about this story. It gives us two different reasons that don't align to why Lash came out of the cave. The first reason is it doesn't matter if I hide or not. It doesn't matter when we get out. He figures that out. And the second is that he, it's safe to come out because he realizes it's safe. It's kind of contradictive, right? Because if you don't care, why do you care if it's safe or not? Now, look, this is where philology comes in handy. If we take out the bird parts, let's ignore the bird parts and read uh-huh. directly... From the first line, see how you're having your hand out? The first line, and then the second. Let me read the story without the birds. At the end of 13 years, he said, shouldn't I go to see what happened in the world? Uh, when he saw that the difficulties had diminished, he said, let me go down and visit the back of That's a smooth story, right? He said, after 13 years, like, should I check if it's safe? He sees that it's safe when he comes out, right? Someone... Stuck that's part in and that doesn't work with the story, cuts the story in the middle and gives a whole different reason to come out with a different ideology in mind, right? A very deterministic kind of a thing. One of the reasons I'm saying that it's a later edition, that notice that this is the only part of the story that's not in the Talmud, in the Babylonian Talmud right? All the other parts that are in the Ushami are in the Babli. That's the one thing that's in the Ushami, not in the Babli. Cool, right? So, when is asking me, did the Baghri know the Urushalmi? I was careful and I said it knows traditions from the Urushalmi, but I don't think the Baghri knew the story as is. Yeah. Someone here is revising the Yushangi to stick the bird story in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? But that doesn't work so well, right? It's a different theology altogether, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's a cool philological, yes?
1: But there's also, maybe you can read it both ways, there's also a linguistic connection between that sentence and the one that he goes to Tiberia, because in both of them, there's another use of the word dimus.
0: Amra dimus. Yeah. And then the adim dimusin. No, no, not the same the, thing. No, OK. But it sounds like Yeah. There, there's like, yeah not the this, this is dimus, this is uh, uh, Latin for, and dimusin is uh, bathhouses. Yes, yes. Ah, you're saying literally that speaking that, that it initially
1: sounds... Initially there's like mm-hmm. in the same like one word. line, one
0: after the
1: mm-hmm. other, two Interesting. That,
0: that, sounds that, that sounds similar. That sounds... even though that the meaning exactly. is totally different, different, the, word, the oh. way that they sound is exactly, is almost the same. So okay. I say, and it's not common the to use the word, you know. Latin. Oh, actually it appears a few times. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a, a, a legal term that's taken from courts. Because when someone goes and they say guilty or I right? plead guilty or not guilty, that's how they used to say it, demons or not. The judge would declare someone, uh, this is actually a word that appears a few times. But... No, you. Yeah, or, you know, I plead guilty or not. Okay. But uh, thank you. That's uh, that's an interesting comment. It, 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 it traverses about literary re- reworking of stories and using common words and, and uh, similar sounds. That's worth considering. Okay. yes.
1: So if everything's from God, he first gets the idea, possibly from God, that, ooh, shouldn't I go look? I mean, 13 years, didn't he have that idea before that? But why 13 years? So, thir- so, you know, the idea is the thought from God, and then he sees. I mean, even if you take that, that he sees that the difficulty's not there, that he almost does it symbolically with the bird first if they inserted that. But, you see that this but he sees...
0: I understand, but look at theologically what it means. When you're in trouble, do you go and hide or you don't, right? It's a totally different ideological thing. It does God control what you do no matter what you do, so stop just stop attending. Or do you really consider, you know, the rational should I hide or should I not, right? This is the really difficult two difficult theological stances regarding difficulties in life. And they're not the same. And what's cool is that if you take it out, you actually see how the story was actually interrupted and someone stuck someone in something in, right? Okay. Yes. Yes. Be you said that
1: this part is not in the Bible. Yes. However, there is something like a parallel about the story, like the the title of both is "What did he say?" The first thing when he came out of the cave. Yes. In this, in answer to this question, Babylonian and Palestinian, the different answers. This one says, he said what we just read, and the other one had another story. Uh, Going to the bathhouse?
0: He,
1: no, no, no. Uh, the one with did... the Seeing him and laughing, oh. sewing. yes. So this is what he said when he came out. So you can look at it. You that, think that this is a parallel. Yeah, there is a parallel. I mean, there is a question in the folk day, what did what were the first say the first time when he went out? out? What was the experience? What was the, the most important for him uh, to, to
0: say? So you have two, two, two different answers available. to this question. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, back to our story. So, he, he comes out, and what's the first thing he wants to do when he comes out? Bath houses. Remember, the Romans not only did roads well, they also brought into the ancient world hygiene, right? Uh, remember how I mentioned last, uh, Brian last night at Monte Python? There's a very famous scene when they say the rebels are like, oh, let's fight the Romans. What have the Romans ever done for us? Let's fight them, let's fight them. And then someone picks up out. oh, road system. They're like, okay, what have the Romans ever done to us besides the Romans? It's like, oh, hygiene. Oh, what have the Romans? And then they start doing, oh, and the, the security of the street, and the, the teaching us, and the bathhouse, and what have the Romans ever done to us besides this and this and, that, and that? Nothing. And they are all like go and rebel. In any case, it's a very funny scene, and it's, it's really... Uh, um, parallel to what we find in the tunnel. And actually, someone told me that the screenwriters are actually familiar with this passage. But in any case, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I actually have a friend who teaches Monty Python Life of Brian in relation to rabbinic sources. But in any case... Uh, so they do bathhouse as well. And they bring hygiene to the ancient world. By the way, I just spent time with my family at Vichan. B- the new site is just magnificent. And there's a huge bathhouse and public bathrooms. And it's, it's beautiful to see. And um, So in any case, he goes out and he goes to the bathhouse. And that's the first thing he does. Obviously, we just learned that he spent 13 years and his body is rusted, right? So this is the first thing he decides to do. And that's, the say, that's like the shell. that's the, the, the skeleton of the story that we will find most of it, as I said, besides the birthday, also in the bathroom. Right? we'll talk about it in a second. Now, the continuation of the story, because a lot of you asked, uh, deals, and that's the part that gets a lot of attention in follow literature, and I'll, I'll say a few words about that. The, the continuation of the story, you go to the bathhouse, and you're so happy about the bathhouse, imagine, after so 13 years without a bath he's very happy about that and he says okay let me do something nice up to the city and then he says what's what's to be done and they say oh we have a problem of uh, doubtful uh, uncleanliness or unpureousness of, of dead we have a problem of that what does that mean it means according to the sister Beria, that that uh, they had a problem where they had dead bodies buried and they didn't know where and because they didn't know where it's The whole city is considered impure, and so priests, for example, cannot enter the city. And that's a problem, because Tiberius is a huge metropolitan. It's like saying New York has death defilement, maybe, so no one can go into the city. That's really impossible.
1: that that story follows this? Yes, in the continuation of the Hebrew, right? But
0: I didn't translate that, because I'm not going to focus on that one. So he says, what can I do? And he purifies uh, Tiberius using lupins, right, to almost And he encounters opposition. People don't like him doing that. And he gets upset because he said, on the one hand, you vote with me to do that, and then you trash the way I do it, and there's like a whole story. And this story also appears in the Bazli a little differently. Uh, I talked a little bit about that, so I'll mention that. So how he uses the Lukas in the Urushami, he, Spreads them around. He, you know, cuts them and spreads them. And wherever the lupin comes, and there's a bo- the body, dead body, body, yeah. body underneath. The body raises up, and he isn't it cool. And then he takes the body out and buries outside. And then he buries his sphere, sphere of dead body. So there's a whole strand of scholarship that does uh, herbology in the ancient world, and they go into all kinds of details. It's super boring and really detailed. And I. Don't so, know. We use lupin for one kind of. It's like a plant or something. It's a plant, yeah. Oh, okay. it's like, uh, it's, uh, it has a uh, purple the uh, head, like uh. When the it, when it flowers, it has purple heads, but. Does that mean the same movement that we do now? It's a, seriously, don't ask me that stuff. Kind of I'm like really not my area of expertise. I find it extremely boring. I'm very happy that other people don't. But okay, so it's like you know animals that are mentioned and is, it's it it's the same it's really not my field but it's any anyway, some kind of uh, plant. And so he, he 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 throws the lupin around and wherever there's a dead body it rises and they take them out and it's some then purifies the bears. The bodily does it differently. He comes out of the bathhouse, he goes into he goes into uh, the, the city, which is actually not mentioned by name, not to it's just the city. And uh, he actually goes and sticks the lupin in the ground, and wherever it's hard, he knows that there was never a body there. But if it's soft, that means that someone did something to the. So this, and he knows, and then he says, "Oh, the here there used to be a body, and they put like a gravestone or something that they don't have to approach it." So obviously, the body here is taking the lupin tradition and doing it much magically and more. Uh, realistic. But again, I'm not going to talk about this at all. This get, this attracted the attention of scholars, historian scholars, such as Lee Levine, for example, that were very interested in the history of Tiberius and wanted to know about the history of ancient Tiberius. What was the problem? What did people react to it? So this got a lot of attention in that regard, and the cave story not so much. I want to focus about the case story. Okay, so this is the end. I'm not going to talk more about that. So that's let's put this aside. So in any case, he goes out and goes to the bathhouse. That's the end of the Ushara. Now let's turn to the Babuists. Okay. Now I'll talk about this story. Oh, did someone raise their hand there? Yes. We would agree, would you not, that he mattered with really. the missionaries, that he himself... The what, the what, doc? that? he, he himself
1: owned El Azar, but they were both buried in,
0: in the cave. Now they're dealing with the opposite. of His own... Actually not his son, he was buried in a cave, a burial cave, his son was actually, his body was taken up and in a Gag. He was talking about himself. When he was buried, when he was studying? Yes. I thought you were talking about him after he died. Oh, there's another story about his burial cave, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Oh, the being buried, being dead for a while. Interesting. Let's let's read the Bible
1: and then talk about this. Yes. Sounds. I, I think you would read both the Kutami and the Rushalmi in a completely <coughs> different way if you wouldn't um, define it as a story. This is a chain of stories which are put together in one way or another. So if you call it the cave story, I think this is also the wrong title. Because this shows something about your interpretation. Most of it I mean besides one of this chain of stories have nothing really to do with the case. Well, so so so, so, so I'm calling it, saying it's one story, and it's a cave story, it leads us in a place where we Sarah, might not see other things.
0: That's a very good point. So Sarah is making a good point, actually it's a continuation of your previous thought that we need to understand that these are chains of traditions, right? And they're they're even I mean, being put in a subiya. in a context, is also important, but also parts of the story that are put together, and Sarah says, maybe there are different tradition parts together, and calling them. Even the act of cutting them and putting them the way I did on the handout, that's an act of reduction on my part. Choosing to choose that, or Sarah even says, calling it the case story. That's uh, a part, uh, an act, of, and I'm very much aware of that. I think I'll, if I'm careful about signaling where the different tradition comes from, their possible motives and putting them together, I can make a case for reading them as such. You're right that this is not the only way to read them, and you can definitely separate the stories and read them separately. Can I just
1: yes. comment if you accept that, that these stories didn't start was were not invented in writing, they are based on oral tradition. Tradition. Okay. So in oral tradition, you don't tell ten stories in a night. So not each one properly. Not, not always. Okay.
0: There's actually so Sarah's the next comments of Sarah is, is about oral tradition, and we haven't mentioned that at all. And I actually want to talk about this because I'm going to talk about parallel tradition in Christian sources and we'll talk about the reception history so how did this tradition came about and I'm going to talk about reality later on, that's a good question yes, do you want to ask the question? no, ok, let's, let's read the Bible, ok Babylonian Talmud Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosei and Rabbi Shimon were sitting and Yehuda, the son of proselytes was sitting near them right, so we have three sages sitting and we have Yehuda ben Gerim sitting with them important to notice his background, right? Because we know, we already know, that this is where the trouble is going to start, right? It may be just because he doesn't have a patronymic or whatever. You could have just said, Yehuda, told him, Ben-gerim, that's you know, yeah. already yeah. signaling, yeah. Where, I, you know, the, the tunnel doesn't have to be PC, right? <laughs> it lived in a different time period, we're fine with that. But in any case, obviously, there's some signaling of where this is going to happen. Don't forget, we talked about yesterday. Where you come from, Will will make a difference about what you are in the ancient world, right? Blood matters. Are you illegitimate? That will matter about the person you're going to be. Wh- who, if your parents are not Jewish, that will matter, right? So, according to rabbinic tra- uh, tradition, right? Okay. So, um, where was that? So, the was sitting there. Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Judah, commenced the discussion by observing, "How fine are the works of this people, Roman? They have made streets." They have built bridges. They have erected baths. Mm-hmm. Right? Rabbi was silent. Right? So we have three rabbis. The one rabbi starts on and says, Wow, the Romans are so awesome. So good for us. They build roads. Mm-hmm. They build bathhouses. They, uh, what did they say? Br- bridges. Bridges are big, right? So, so good for us. Labi Yosei doesn't say anything. But Abi Shimon Bar Yochai is also present. Really, really does not agree. And he says... All that they made, they make for themselves. They build marketplaces to set harlots in them. Bath to rejuvenate themselves. Bridges to lay to tolls for them. And right, he says, uh, excuse me, none of it is for us for our benefits. They're doing it for purely egotistical reasons. They they're here around us, they need bathhouses for themselves, so they build bathhouses and they build bridges to take tolls from us, right? It's like, you know, whatever the New Jersey turnpike uh, authorities, you know, they're not you know, doing it for our benefit they're making money out of us who's making the money? Is it a private company or no, the government? No. Oh, that's the whole thing, right, the New Jersey, Oh, what a great uh, yeah, example of that, yes but in any case, right, who's making the money so there's, there's, there's a, an interest in mind, right? So, this is, this is not for us now Judah the son of the proselytes went out and related their talk which reached the government. And they decree: Judah who exalt us shall be exalted, Yosei who was silent shall be exiled to Seppurus, and Shimon who censored, let him be executed. So the Roman doesn't like that conversation. Now let's talk for a second and do a, a rite by Udaish Gerim. I, I had someone here say, oh, he snitched on them, and that's the way the story is usually told. But look carefully how the story is told. Let me do the Hebrew. So the reader says Rabbi uh where was uh I
1: love Alakh
0: Judah ben Gurion veseper dvarim vemisma'u lamlchut He was just blabbing and it, it, was her, it was over it was over hers Wait you, have you seen the movie there's a movie with Julia Roberts and uh it's called uh, The Blue Door in, in England. And he's a shop... uh uh, a bookshop uh, seller, and she's a famous actress. Oh, uh, Notting Hill. Have you seen uh, that movie? No, some of you saw that right. movie. Yeah. So she's a, she's a movie star, and she falls in love with a quaint, a bookseller, yeah. and it's uh, it's a really romantic movie. What? I said, only, a movie. Yeah. only in the movie. Only in the movie. Yeah, it's a really romantic <laughs> movie. Whatever. But she, at some point, she's being she's haunted by yeah. the tabloids, and she finds rescue in his tiny house in, in Notting Hill. He has a roommate. He's a quirky roommate and uh, you know, she's hiding there, right? She doesn't want the tablets to find her. It's unlikely they'll find her there. But the roommate, uh, so the next morning, obviously, obviously they open the door and the entire tablet is at the door and it's like a whole scandal. Uh, but what happened is the roommate goes the night before to the pub and he just laughs. He tells stories and this is how they find out where she is. He, she says in the movie, you're not even smart enough to sell it for money, da 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 right? So I think you've got to getting... The, the, at least we should say... But he did not go and tell the Malchut, right? He just laughed and then True. they found him. Okay, so we did something good by Yudai and at least that. Okay. In any case, so they find out that they want to uh, execute the Rashli. So that's the. Uh, why is this important? Why is the Babi doing that? Why is the Babi telling us that? explaining why he went to the cave. Exactly. Remember, Yerushami doesn't tell us why he's in a cave, right? We had to do all this kind of uh, speculation. So the Ba'atli, and this is actually very common. If you see, if you compare between Ba'atli and Yerushami a lot of the time, you'll see that the Babli doesn't like question unanswered. Doesn't like story that doesn't have an explanation. Why would he be in a cave? So the Ba'atli gives us an explanation, which actually makes sense if we talk about a Roman persecution, etc., what we know about Ashby. And they're like, this is, this is, uh, let me explain this to you. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, because Sarah mentioned that, we actually have a parallel tradition to that in the beginning of a Vodah that has a lot of similar motives that we have in that story. So some scholars have suggested that when the Bavi tries to explain why is he in a cave, they had handy tradition talking about the the rabbis debating, this is a real debate if we talk about post-colonial, right? The oppressed. They're enjoying the occupation in a sense but can you still object the occupier when you're enjoying the occupation, right? This is, this is, a, this is a tough one, it's a tough model, right? You would say, we actually have a huge debate among scholars, Martin Goodman says, oh, the, the Jews were so happy under the Romans, da, da, da. and some say, no, they were so, un- un- un-. so what's the truth, right? Uh, when when an occupier gives you roads and gives you bathhouses and gives you, are you supposed to be happy about that? Can you be happy and still feel oppressed, right? That's a, that's a question that I'm going to say. So Abadaza, the beginning of Abu has a whole sugi about this, and some scholars suggested that when the babi tries to offer why he went to the kid, they were using that tradition to build that story. Okay. So my wait, wait, sorry, he was asking, yes? Isn't the, uh, I mean, probably
1: doesn't talk about it because
0: So now you're giving an explanation. Why would the Babli be more explicit against yes, the Roman rather the 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 than Wushabli? So Peter Schaefer does that, for example, about what we did yesterday about Jesus in the Talmud. He says, oh, why do we have all those traditions about Jesus only in the Talmud, Babylonian Talmud and not in the Palestinian Talmud? Ah, it's because the Jews in Palestine were so afraid to talk about Jesus and the Babylonian Jews were not. This is on the hypothesis. I don't know what they were scared to write, what they were not. They actually write very nasty things about the Romans differently in other places. So, I don't. this is very difficult. This is what's called learning from silence, right? You have to hypothesize, why did someone not say something? They could have, when I said goodbye to my kids this morning, we're staying in a hotel and they're amazed by PBS, like we, we don't have that. Uh, so, they were watching Kiris uh, George. There was like a loop of PBS in the morning. I didn't know that. So they were watching this, and I said good, goodbye to them, and they even didn't even look at me when I lifted up. So did they not love me, or did they were they were too occupied? You know, this is you know as a mother, uh, you're like ah, did not say even goodbye or whatever. So right? How, what do you learn from silence, right? Well, that's my you know uh, association this morning. But you know it still hurts that I didn't say goodbye. Because tears, yours was more interesting than me. But in any case. Uh, so, what do you learn from silence? Can you, what do you learn about their being afraid or not? Right, that's a question, but that's a valid hypothesis. But I don't know. <coughs> but in any case, so they go, they, they, they go into the cave because they're worried about the Romans, right? But then look what they do. The he and his son, all of a sudden, we hear he has a son, and he goes and hides in a cave with his son. Right, so the baby all of a sudden has a son. And does the son appear in the Yerushalmi? No. He doesn't. But. But the Palestinian tradition that in Yerushalmi actually exists in other sources in, in later Agadaik Midrash, and the sun is added there. But I think it's because of the Bavli, not the other way around. But in any case, the Yerushalmi doesn't have the sun, and the the, uh, the Bavli does, and he goes with his son. And where do they hide? Beit Midrash, in the study house, right? And no, well, now they're hiding in the study house. Not uh, what kind of a hiding place is that, right? It's, Right, but it's a Jewish hiding place, right? So the Romans maybe not know where you're hiding. But in any case, he and his wife, but study house is all men. They need food, right? So who gives them the food? His wife. He brings them every day bread and a mug of water, and they dine. So every day she brings them sandwiches. But when the decree became more severe, he said to his son. We're in our unstable temperament, Nashim Datan Kala, she may be put to torture and expose us. So they went and hid in a cave. So we actually have an entrance into the cave in two parts. Wow! Well, and now we rejoin the Roshani, right? Where we're we, at the cave. So and by the way, the Babi will take them out of the cave in two stages as well. So we have a two stage entrance and the 2 is depart departure from departure from the from the uh, cave and So, the first thing to the study house and then to the case. And let's talk about it for a second. So, the wife gives them food every day, and he says, We can't trust her. Why can't we trust her? Because they might torture her and she'll tell where we are. Now, this is an argument, I know uh, it's in American as well, but in Israel as well, when they're talking about incorporating women in uh, combatant units in the army, Mm -hmm. right? So, what's the main argument against that? So there's one because soldiers cannot control themselves when women are around, but the second one is, well, we don't want a woman to be captured and raped, right? So that's why we don't want women to be, because obviously we all know that men never get captured, they never get tortured, they never tell tell stories, and they never get raped as well, right? So only the women we have to take care of, that's a valid argument, uh, used to be considered a valid argument, and people have fought against it, but again, that's the argument here, right? She might be tortured and tell about us, we all know we can't trust women. He's not worried about any of the other men studying in the study house. Right? He's just worried about the, the, the woman. Right? And and then they leave and go to the cave. And the story doesn't tell us, but I can every time I read this, my heart is a little bit broken But She knows her husband and her son are have a, you know, bounty on their head. They're, they're 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 persecuted. And she brings them food every day. And then the next day, Obviously, they didn't tell her they're going because she doesn't know where they are. She comes up the next day with the food, and they're not there. And they're gone for 13 years. I'm just ah. like, to think of that woman. Well, the Tama doesn't. She doesn't, doesn't care she doesn't about doesn't her. Doesn't? But doesn't. It doesn't, it
1: doesn't have say, to. It doesn't say that they don't know. That she doesn't know.
0: But if she knows, that this defeats the purpose, right? You well, don't want her to know no, because no, she doesn't know that she's going somewhere.
1: We're on or not the Tama, the the Tama the Tama didn't didn't,
0: are The not talking the silence. The Talmud doesn't tell us. It says it doesn't trust her to not reveal their secrets. So they don't tell her. So they don't tell her. Maybe they know her she she be You're being very I kind to Rashi. I don't. I think. Yeah, I think the I matter, better. I, I think the more reasonable is that you didn't tell her. But okay, you want to be nice to them. Okay. You can very well. I, I, your argument at the end of this. Um, uh, at the end of this
1: which is critical of Rabbi Shimon Bar is critical of that
0: as well. Really? I don't think exactly, that, I no, no, like, like, like we have yeah. at the end he's learned his lesson. He
1: goes to the bathhouse. He, he tries to also help in the resurrection of the dead. He's part of life.
0: His whole consciousness has been... Yeah, been, but none of it has anything to made, do with his life. Yes, yeah, so, no, 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 But, but that's He also learned to be nicer to women. I don't see that in the story, but no. maybe. <laughs> You're all being very charitable to us. I think that the story doesn't call for it, but okay. Okay, back to us. That's just me. Go back. Uh, so they went and hid in a cave. By the way, I want
1: to yes. say that you read it here as yes. two stages. Yes. Right? If you take the approach that this is a chain of stories, which the, the chain was put by the editor. So one, one folk traditional folk story, whatever you call it, folk tale, was about uh, the, the, the three people talking, and that's why you went the cave, and another story, completely that, that, different one, was about his wife, that, that's, and the editor put it one next okay. to the other, gives you the impression that these are two stages. That, that,
0: that's, that's okay, that's okay, you, you're, we have to differentiate between two things. The origin of the story that you might be, you well, be right, but I'm dealing with the story as it is edited here, okay? But if you say the story, or will you say the story is. Again, the way it's done here, I think it's a story. There's a continuation,
1: right? The
0: editor says uh, they go and hid in the study house, and then because yeah, they don't trust you, it, they go into the
1: cave. If you call, if you read, the, if this is, I, I approach it like Chiffre If you read Chiffre or Chiffre No, that's fine, but even
0: uh, no, but if the editor s- tells us that this is a continuation, this is how I treat it according to the editor. The editor gives us a continuation, right? Yes. Okay, so back to us. So they went and hid in a cave, and a miracle occurred, and a carrot tree and water well were created for them. What does the Babi do here? Carrot Yeah, but what, does he, what kind of information oh. give us? It?
1: That it's a miracle, that it wasn't just there when they showed
0: up. Okay, but more than that, what does the Babi do? What kind of answer does the Babi answer? How did they eat? Why did they, how did they sustain themselves? Right, there's no more. No Why giving the sandwiches? Right. So, what did they eat? The Ushami doesn't give us that answer. It may be the care of Tumah. There might be a hint there, but here the Bible is very explicit. Why they what they ate and drank? Right. So there's a miracle in the caravan true and by the way, someone did an experiment. Can you live off carob. carobs for 13 years? Why would anyone do that? But anyway, uh, someone did. And apparently you cannot. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The Bible didn't know that. But in any case, in a you can live in a, it's it's very, it's very healthy and has a lot of minerals and stuff that you need, but not enough. But in any case, so they would strip their garments and sit up to their necks in sand. And the whole day they studied. And it was time for pray. They rocked, covered themselves, prayed, and then put up their garments again so that they should not wear out. What are they doing? So what is the Bible? First, what is the Babli telling us here? What's the answer that it's giving us here?
1: Okay.
0: What did they do in the case? So the Yerushalmi just tells us they were there for 13 years or he was there for 13 years. The Babli says, oh, what What did they do? Now, again, the question that I was asked, why would you bring your son in? So why would the Babli bring the son in? Chavotah, right? If, you, if you're a rabbi, you need to study Torah. You can't for 13 years not study Torah. And if you study Torah, in rabbinic, Study house. You have to have a chavuta, like we did this morning, right? You cannot. You cannot do it on your own. So they are they're, they're bring in the sun and do a but notice, by the way, the imagery, right? If we're going to talk about asceticism and dedication to Torah, look at the imagery. This is literally talking heads, right? They're inside the stand, and you only see the head talking, right? And, and there's no body, right? It's just studying Torah. That it's really, uh, uh, well, why are they doing that? Why are they hiding themselves inside the stand? Their clothes. Yeah, well why why the clothes? I guess they would have
1: worn out. Exactly, right?
0: Then there's no tailors around. There's no wife to men, you know, mend the clothes. So the, the clothes are very neatly folded in this side of the cave and every time they daven, apparently you had to wear clothes for davening so three times a day they would dress their clothes but then go back and so the, the clothes will not wear out right? very practical, so the Bavri talks about the clothing talk about the food, talk about what they do this is all kind of stuff the Oshami doesn't have this is very typical Bavli reworking of the Oshami tradition he doesn't like stuff that are not clear Okay, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to take less questions if you don't mind and then continue because I haven't even got around to the question stuff. But isn't yes. This,
1: isn't he endangering his son because if they had been Ah,
0: good question. Yes. Okay, yes. Back to us. So then we're not aware. Okay, continuation of the story. They dwelt 12 years in the cave. How much in the Oshami? 13. 13, so we only have 12. Elijah came and stood at the entrance to the cave and exclaimed, Who will inform the son of Yechai that the emperor is dead and his decree annulled? So uh, Elijah comes along outside the cave and this is how they learn notice he's yelling from outside the cave Right? He's not, he doesn't go away I'll talk about this in a second but in any case this is how they learn that they come out and they emerge and they see a man plowing and sowing and they exclaim. they forsake life eternal and engage in life temporal what does that mean?
1: they are not doing something holy. they are wasting their life you,
0: are, you have the option of studying Torah how do you do anything else? kudos to you Gauls for coming to study with me today and not going to work, uh, right? So, this is, this. Is, you have the opportunity to do life eternal. How do you work the land, right? Whoever they cast their eyes upon was immediately burned up. i talked a little bit with people around here. Yeah, right. This is, this is a they take on... That themselves. Yes. No, does say that. Who? No, 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 is not, that's it. Elial has gone. He's just said that and he goes away. We don't have a Liao anymore. They see people working the land and they say that. And the and, uh, burning with the eyes. I was talking to people around here, is yeah, the take on the ancient, of the ancient world evil eye. In the ancient world, they believed very strongly that people had the ability to hurt with their eyes, certain people. This is a very natural reaction. You see, people are very jealous, and they give you like an unsatisfied eye. And then the next day, something happened, and you're like, "Oh, definitely, that's because of the eye." So that's a tradition in the ancient world. The Greeks believe in it, and um, well, yeah, Indian gods have a third eye that you know can. So this is a very manifestation of the evil eye. They're very upset with the people working the land, so their eyes shoots uh flames, right? If you if you look at each third eye in Indian culture, you'll see the third eye of the of the of the uh, the goddess uh, can burn with their eyes. This is a, co- a concept that's shared in all tradition about the evil the concept of evil eye, and they have that. Now I therefore this. That the is not that the we'll talk about that later in a second. Okay. Now thereupon a heaven the echo came forth and said have you emerged to destroy my world? Re- return to your cave. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, excuse me, that's not what you're supposed to do. And so they returned and dwelled there 12 months. We, now we've reached how much? So 13 years. Now we've reached uh, sorry, two, that's what I said, a two-stage getting out, saying, the punishment of wicked and gehenon is limited to 12 months. What happened to the cave? What happened to the cave in the Bible story? Well, the first 12 years, the cave is what? A high, uh, the paradise or a hiding place from the Romans. What happens in the last 12 months? The Punish cave becomes a punishment, a, punishment. Right? a tool in reforming Rashbi and his son. Right? This, is, this is important because the cave changes function we don't have that in the Ushanga, but that's important for me in a second. So when the heavenly voice comes forth and says go forth from your cave. And thus they came out and wherever will be wounded wound, will uh, Shimon healed. So who, who goes through this transformation? I'll ask you, but what kind of transformation is that? He says to him, to his son, my son, you and I are sufficient for the world. Meaning who cares what the others do? We're so awesome, we don't need anyone else. Yeah. A very Jewishy point of view, right? We'll talk it's about it in a second. We'll yeah, talk about it in a second. But I love how this is taught usually in like study houses, modern one, very wow, the transformation of the wind. this is not a transformative sentence. This is just <laughs> don't bother with the little ones. Okay. I'm I'm kind of I'm killing this a little bit. But in any case, let's skip the old man because they see an old man and they less important for us, it's not found in the Ushad, but then the 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 the, the, the bathhouse. Well If al Khazman his son in law heard and went out to meet him, right? He heard that he's alive after thirteen years and he meets him. By the way, who's gone from the story completely? So the son, we don't need him anymore. We just needed him for the study, right? So it doesn't matter. So we come and see and see him, and they go and they went and, uh, where? They go to the bathhouses, and the son-in-law helps him uh, massaging his flesh. I don't. Do you know? Like so, in the ancient world, how did they bath themselves? They go and sit in those. those three rooms: the hot room, the cold room, the middle, the middle room. And uh, they used to have uh, kind of a clay, kind of a thing. And they used to rub it on themselves and scratch it with kind of uh, wood thingies, like you scratch the ice on the mm-hmm. car when it's icy. So oh, the same, thing, this is how you used to basically exfoliate. This is exfoliate. how they used to uh, 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 exfoliate, yes. The, the. So he, he does that to him. But when he was doing that, what does he see? The clefts his body uh, had, right, from 13 years in a cave and sitting in sand, not recommended for uh, good the uh, skin treatment. So he sees the cleft in the body and he weeps. Why? Because he feels awful for his uh, father-in-law, right? But when he weeps, his tears come down and they, they, they fall on the wounds, like it's pouring salt on the wounds, literally, right? And what happens? So Rajvi is like, oh, oh, this, 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 this thing, right? It's a little bit funny. And he's like, ah, oh. but he says, oh, woe to me that I see you in such a state. And what does Rajvi say back to him? Happy are you that you see me thus. Suffering is good for you. It's good to suffer. For if I did not see me in such a state, you would not find me thus learned. And then the Bible explains what it means. For originally, before the cave, when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai raised the difficulty, Rabbi Pinchas was the better scholar. He would raise a question and Rabbi Zalim would give him 12 answers. When he come out of the cave and they go back studying to studying together, what happens? Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ib raises a question and Rashbi not only gives him 12, they give him 24 answers. Like double, triple, quadruple, good scholar. And why is he a good scholar, according to the story? He sat in the cave. for 13 years in Spain and suffered for it. Just how fortunate we are to sitting in a you know heated room and, and with water and, and light, right? And and uh, hopefully it will not make us that big of a scholars, but according to this story, right? So that's the story. So and then it goes on to the uh, purification, which I'm not gonna do. What does this have anything to do? I'm sorry, I'm gonna cut the question short because I'm, I really I have very short time. It was supposed to be much longer, the Christian side. What does this have to do with Christian studies? Here I want to address and continue the conversation from yesterday. When we were talking about Jewish-Christian interaction, I said the first place to look for Christian in the Talmud would be in the obvious places, where it says Jesus. And then we find the Talmud. What did we find out last night? We found out last night that we are polemic, polemicizing against Jesus. Jesus is sitting in poop, he's making fun of the rabbis, he's licentious he's, he's sexually promiscuous, he's uh, right, he's uh, what else? He is illegitimate. We talked about all I claimed that in order to do that they had to do a lot of they had to know a lot of Christian tradition, that was a hint for today, but it was a very polemical view. So up until a certain point ago, when scholars said what did Jews think of Christian in the ancient world? The question was very clear. They were polemicizing against Christian. I come forward to you and I say, I think this is because we were looking for the lost coin under the flashlight. It's easy to find you. But for a normal person living in the world, even today, think about your Jewishness, those of you who consider themselves Jewish when you look at your Jewishness how much of your day is spent thinking about theological concept my, my, you know, how, what's the nature of God how is he revealed in the world or things like that is Jesus the Messiah or not how much time do you spend on that and how much do you spend if you spend any time at all about questions such as prayer, how to doven how to give charity how much do you spend on Torah learning and how much do you spend on your regular life how to do? You need to suffer in order to. You have to go listen to really boring lectures, such as myself. How much do you have to suffer for your studying? How much do you fasting on your empty pool? Is it supposed to be hard to fast or is it not? Like question like that on a daily basis. What's the relationship between myself and God? How do I relate to God? How do I talk to God? I think the same way that our life. Is made my, our religious life, our spiritual life, is made up much more of those questions than the dramatic question. I think in the ancient world it's the same thing. And if I'm right, then when I want to ask the question, what's the relationship with Jews and Christian, and I go ask about those kind of things, what did a Christian think about charity? What did Jews think about charity? Did they think the same way? Did they hate each other's answers and offered a different one? When they were talking about suffering for your religion, asceticism. Right? or fasting or martyrdom. martyrdom right? did they offer the same question, the same answers, did they think the same way talking about prayer, how to pray to one's God, did they offer the same questions or not, this opens up a whole vista of questions and that if we start to look at the text comparatively I think our understanding of the relationship with Jews and Christians becomes much more complex than you want. and I give you as an example this story now when we talk about Christianity in the ancient world, we tend to think about it as scholastic religion. How did Christian interpret Scripture? When Augustine was looking at Scripture, how did he? But the truth is that one of the most, well, like Judaism is not one religion. There's a lot of different groups, etc. The same way about Christianity. And Christianity, we need to understand when we learn about Christianity that one of the major movements in the ancient world is actually called the monastic movement. We talks about monks. Now, monks, if we talk about uh, 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 caves, etc., so we're talking about the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, starting in Egypt, but also very strongly in the desert in Judea and in Syria, we have a phenomenon where holy men decides to go separately off in caves eat very little, sleep very little, see very little people, and contemplate and meditate and deal with their uh, uh, desires, neglect all their financial business, uh, separate from their families and and women, obviously. And they are considered holy men that have the power, because of that seclusion, to do miracles, to help other people. Are are very um, powerful and holy men. Uh, And this is a phenomenon that gets super popular super fast. What do I mean by that? That means that the moment this starts happening, at the same time, there's a whole movement of pilgrimage to go see them. They want to be secluded, but everyone wants to see them being secluded and doing miracles and everything. So we actually have a whole phenomenon of people coming up to their caves, hearing what they have to say, and writing down their miracles and their stories. And the literature about those holy men becomes super popular and super... uh, um, they're like the celebrities in the ancient world. It's like you know how you go to the supermarket and there's like *ass* magazine and, and all this. I uh, no, can't give you another names, but all those magazines and all oh, we saw a, citing a, a, a celebrity sighting. That's what the ancient world did, and we have tens of manuscript of tens of thousands of manuscript. In all the languages of the ancient world—Greek and Coptic and, and, and Aramaic and, and and Latin and all kinds of language, Syriac of the ancient world—translating what those holy men are doing, what they're they're saying, etc. And they become so popular and so revered that even we have. Peter Brown, a scholar, comes along and actually creates a new time in history, the end of the ancient period and the beginning of medieval time, and he terms it late antiquity Mm -hmm. as the period where the holy men were most vital and important. I'm saying all of that because I'm trying to say this was so popular and so well known that everyone knew about those people, including our own uh, rabbinic tradition creators. Now, don't forget, we're talking about the Babylonian Talmud. Now what I'm going to try and say is that the differences between the Bavli and Ushami, the list of stats that we mentioned, we'll go back to the beginning of the handout, the exposition explaining the circumcision of the fly, the flight in two stages, the addition of the sun, the of and the miracle the tree, and the days, and the, and the body coverage and sun and Elijah, etc., all of this stuff can be explained if we understand that the rabbis were actually using monastic popular literature to redescribe describe as a monastic figure. Bear with me for a second and we'll do this. In order to do that, I need to explain some things. So go back to this. Uh, so first, on the, on the middle row, you actually see uh, some cases. This is from the Judean desert from Dadi Ked. I don't know if you know. This is near uh, Tvaladumim. There's actually, you can see caves where the monks were actually uh, uh, living and even monasteries, there's just one of the monasteries that you can see in Israel where the monastery was built on the side of the mountains as part of the cave, so the cave and then the monastery came after that, it's beautiful, you can see it, if you're a man you can actually go in And it's, uh, this, 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 is, this is a real thing that was happening in the land of Israel but not only, the map on the top shows you, this is the, 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 this is the, the Persian Gulf Right, the bottom of the Persian Gulf, the two lines that spill into, that's the plat and the Chideka, the Tigris and the mm-hmm. Euphrates, right? And the, 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 the narrow area in between, that's where the Jews were living. But all the others, these are Christian settlements in Babylonia. Remember how I said that some scholars used to say that there's no Christianity in the Babylonian Talmud? Look at this map. So, this is monasteries and uh, churches and Christian settlements all around the Persian area. This is fifth, 5th, 6th century, right? The same time as the Babylonian Talmud redactions. And this is so prevalent and so popular, and they're very rich because they have an autonomous community that are growing uh, wines and and food, and people bring them um, gifts and and, and Marcel Tait. And 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 there's so uh, no kid. No kids there No, exactly. No, no pain for. Uh, no, they actually, uh, they were actually the teachers that were going around the monks teaching reading or writing to all the kids in the area and copying manuscript. And so rich that even the Sasanian authorities in the Persian Empire used them as tax collectors in certain areas. So when saying Jews did not live around Christian in the Persian Empire, it's very hard to say when you're looking at this map. Now let's read some monastic stuff. This is from your handout. Jerome. Jerome is a church father, and he's very, very attracted to those holy men, and he goes around and he tells the stories about them. And Jerome's trying to figure out... He's 4th Yeah, he's not, 4th fourth century. 4th fourth century. So he goes around and tells about those monks, and he wants to figure out who was the first one. And he thinks people say, it's one guy, I think it's the other guy, and he tells us a story. During the persecution of this season, the Valerian, Cornelius and Roman sacred, and shed their blood in blessed martyrdom. We're talking about the the Christian, right? The Christian are being persecuted by the Romans. Many churches in Egypt and the Thebaid were laid waste by the fury of the storm, while such enormities were being perpetrated per- 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 in the lower part of the Thebaid. Paul and his newly married sister were bereaved of both their parents, and he uh, he being about sixteen years of age. His brother-in-law conceived the thought of betraying the youth whom he was bound to conceal. So we're not trusting the sister so much. Of the sister, there's like a Roman persecution. There's a problem with the sister there that might tell about him. And the young man had the tact to understand this, and confirming his will to the necessity, fled to the mountains wild to wait to the end of the persecution. He began with the oh, you're missing all the good stuff. I know. Ah. He began with easy stages and repeated halts to advance into the desert. At length he found the rocky mountains, at the foot of which, closed by a stone, was a cave of no great size. And he removed the stone, so eager a man to learn what is hidden, made eager search, and saw within a large hole open to the sky, but chased by the widespread branches of an ancient palm, the tree, however, did not conceal a fountain with transparent clearness. The waters thereof no sooner gushed forward than the stream was swallowed up in the small opening of the same ground which gave it birth. Accordingly regarding his abode as a gift from God, he fell in love with it, and there in prayer and solitude spent all the rest of his life the palm tree afforded him food and clothing. So what do we have? We have someone fleeing from Roman persecution, going to look for a a place to hide, but falling in love with this place, so changing the meaning of the cave from a persecuted hiding place into a spiritual uh, cave. He drinks and eats from a miraculous fountain and a tree. He's clothed by the tree, right? We have a problem with clothes. And he prays and contemplates while he's there. Another story. Again, I just chose two, but there's a lot of those. The story of Abba Timothy. Now I was glad to flee from my sin with this woman. Again, something that has to do with women. He fought. He flees. I rose and came to the desert. And I renounced everything between myself and that woman. By the way, nothing happens with the woman. He just wants to do something with the woman. I found the spring of water in this cave and died palm trees. Again, a cave with a tree and a miracle of Water. And my life was fixed like this. This palm tree produces 12 bunches of date each and um, one each month. And this bunch from a single palm tree lasts me for 30 days at a time. And after the 30 days, another bunch grows in its place. I have no beard for thought. Oh, bread, sorry. Beard, yeah. I have no bread for thought. You see why I said sorry? I have no bread for food. See, I'll tell you why the beard thing. And my hair has continued to grow. (laughs) and my clothes have completely worn out. Now I clothe with the hair of my head that should be respectfully covered. See how my brain looks? Yes, he has a long beard and uh, his body hair covers what needs to be covered. So again, we have an occupation with the clothes, what to do with the clothes, and we have a miraculous fountain and the tree and, uh, 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 and uh, the hiding cave and the spiritual. It starts as a hiding place and then goes, goes to become a spiritual awakening. I, I hope you see where I'm heading with this. I think, the, the, the Babylonian Talmud takes a tradition that's found in the Palestinian Talmud and retells it. Again, nothing is invented. They have a tradition, probably rooted in some historical truth about hiding in a cave in the bar Kokhba revolt, but retelling it in a language that's very popular at the time. There's not, again, this is totally rabbinized and kosher, right? They study Torah in the cave. They don't study rabbin, monastic, Christian writing in the cave. But the way it's told, it's told in a way that's going to be very appealing to a crowd that knows all about it. This is kind of like uh, how we come from Israel and Hanukkah is not a big deal, right? You get a little bit of yell the third night. And you come here and there's like a... gifts all every day and there's like a whole... This is so, you know, a little bit influenced by the surrounding gift-giving other holiday that's happening, right? So there is... There is something to be said about bringing in a language that's appropriate and, and, and bring it into the fold the same way is being done here. It's like you know when I'm giving this talk, I'm quoting from Harry Potter and Life of Ryan and I'm quoting from uh, Monty... Uh, knocking heel, right? I'm using popular uh, culture to explain what I want. The same way that the rabbis are doing about Rashbi. Again, they're bringing, uh, in a second, they're bringing in, I have very, very uh, little time, they're bringing in outside literary traditions to better explain what they want to do. But they're using monastic literature. Let's go further than that. Remember how he comes out and he sees the, the, the people burning, the burning them in their eyes and the criticizing them for working? Again, a very obvious question that every religious society will have how much attention between how much you dedicate for your daily life, needing to earn money, and the need for spiritual development. This is something that all of us struggle on a daily basis how much you devote, right, for your daily life. And this this is something that every religion will struggle a brother, this is Sylvanos. a brother, one of the monks, went to see Abba Silvanus on the Mount of Sinai. There's a, a very famous monastery community on Mount of Sinai very early on, and they go and visit each other. So he goes and visits his... When he saw the brothers working hard, he sees monks working the land to grow some vegetables to eat. And he sees them working, and he's appalled. And he says to them, and he quotes from John, do not labor for the food which perish, but for the meat which endures into everlasting life. He uses the same word, everlasting life, life eternal versus life temporal. And he's very upset with them working the line. Doesn't burn anyone. <laughs> Me, uh, and then he continued, the old man said to the disciple, Zacharias, give the brother a book and put him in a cell without anything else. So, when the time hours came, the visitor watched the door expecting someone would be sent to call him to the meal. When no one called to him, he got up and went to find the old man and said to him, have the brother not eaten today? And the old man replied that they had. Then he said, why did you not call me? And the old man said to him, because you are a spiritual man. You do not need that kind of food. We, being carnal, want to eat and this is why we work. But you have chosen the good portion, etc. So what happens? So he sees the people working the land and criticizes them using the same word eternal life and poor life. How is he taught a lesson? He's sent into a cave and says, okay, you live your eternal life. We need to eat. And then he gets hungry and he needs the food and then he's taught a lesson. So again, the cave is used as a mechanism to teach and to punish uh, someone for criticizing people, for working for making a different choice than your own, right? So this is, again, I, I have very short time, so I'll, I'll skip to what I want to say. I'm basically trying to say that the Ramas are reconstructing a story, a basic story, using monastic traditions that were very prevalent in the time. Again, having no Desire to engage with Christian tradition. That's not the point. They're not talking about Christianity. They're not talking about Jesus. They're talking about very simple questions. Does being secluded, that suffering for your study is important for your work? According to the monastic tradition, yes, you cannot be a holy man if your dad hasn't suffered and didn't sleep and go into the desert on your own. So Rashbi says, "Yes, I think that I became a better scholar because I went to a cave and, and came and be secluded and suffered." This is a question that every scholar is asking himself, right? How much you need to suffer for your work to be better, right? Or do you? Uh, how do you talk about the tension between work and work and life balance, right? Or, or you know, spiritual? How much you work and how much you study? These are questions that every religion asks themselves. And the rabbis are looking at the parallel their neighbors, and the popular literature that's hanging around, and they're saying, oh, this is the same question we're asking, and they're asking it about Rashbi Again, totally kosher and rabbinic, and I always when I tell this, I say, you know, we have the cave of we where rumored to be in Israel, in uh, uh, the cave, this is the most pilgrimage site in Israel. It has a million visitors per year, the, the cave of Rashbi, Ravashir al Bar
1: And
0: this is because Rashbi later becomes the hero of the Zohar, and this is considered you know, to be his cave, so this is, becomes huge and big. But again, the Zohar is basing on the Babylonian Tamil tradition. So I always find it interestingly, historically speaking and sociologically speaking, that this is a story, again, that was completely... The, uh, you know, uh, digested into the you know Jewish tradition and later on in the Kabbalah, etc. But its origin might be influenced in, in its structure by monastic culture. So I I, fi- I find it extremely interesting how intertwined and again complex the word I want to use is complex. What is Jewish Christian interaction in the ancient world? They're complex. They're thinking about similar issues. They're using literary tradition to describe similar aspects to make it more accessible, more approachable. So. I'll stop here for a second and ask the same question we asked yesterday. Historically speaking, if I'm right in the way that I recognize the story, then look how much the Jews knew about Christians. They knew about, I don't think it's so hard when you look at the map to imagine that they knew that, but in any case, this is new, right? Scholars did not think that before. We are now realizing that we can no longer study the Talmud in isolation from what's happening in the, around the world. They're using me- literary metaphor that's being used by popular literature of the time. And they're using it to think about Jewish concept. They're, they're using it to think about Talmud Torah. And they're using it to, to think about uh, uh, asceticism. And they're using it to think about uh, uh Objection to the Romans. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? How, how is Rashmi portrayed? How to relate to other people, common folks, right? That work the land. How, so all of this is a concept that they're thinking about or Talmud Torah in general and they're using popular literature that's go, hanging around in the area to rethink rabbinic tradition. So what's Jewish-Christian interaction that's seen from these stories? Complex, right? They know what the Christians are reading. They know what holy men are doing. And they're using it to rethink about the rabbinic concept. Uh, I. Well, let me, what else did I bring you? Oh, just one thing quickly about Elijah. Finding Elijah in the story, if I'm right about the monastic uh, connection, is not surprising. Uh, Elijah is a very popular monastic figure. It's considered by the monks to be the first monk because you know the the biblical story tells it that he was in the desert, right? Uh, and he's. There's a, monast- a huge monastery in uh, called Mount Carmel, the Carmelites, uh, uh order. Um, he's considered one of the first ones. So it's not surprising to find him, if we're using monastic stuff, to find him here. More interestingly than that, Elijah appears often in the Babylonian Talmud specifically. But in all other places, really all other places that Elijah appears, he's always in the position to tell us what's happening with God. So because he goes back and forward, right? We can ask him, yeah, what did God say when we did that? He's like, oh, God reacted this way or that way. Or when is the Messiah coming and Elijah tells us? So he has knowledge that we humans don't. And he conveys that. Look at this story. He doesn't convey anything about God or anything that any other human being living outside the cave would not know. We could have used any other human being going around the cave and saying that, right? think Elijah here is not Elijah of the, ba- the Babylonian Talmud elsewhere. He's a different Elijah. He's the monk Elijah. And the reason I think that he's depicted in such a way is because the odd way he behaves. Remember, he stands outside the caves and yells, who will tell Rashbi? Why is he not going into the cave? He's Elijah. He's supposed to know that he's there. If you know monastic literature, you would know that you would never enter a monk's cell. The monk's cell or the monk's cave is an isolated place you don't go in. It's his own spiritual bubble. You stay outside. Look at this, uh, Paphnutius. This is in your handout. The continued. This is he's just telling us about. He's going visiting uh, caves. Continued walking into the farther desert, and on the fourth day, I came upon a cave. When I approached it, I knocked at the mouth of the cave according to the monastic custom, in order that the brother might come out and I might greet him. You never go into a monastic cave. So that explains. Yeah, you know, uh, Rubinstein wrote about this, and Rosenzweig, and they're always, very puzzled by Rush, uh, Elijah's, um, you know, behavior in the story. But if you know what monastic stories are all about, you know you never go in. You stand outside and you shout in stories, or you knew uh, that you want them, and they decide if they want to come out or not. So that explains why Elijah is behaving this way. Where is
1: what?
0: Where is there about Elijah? Uh, uh, I have four minutes, so I'll, I'll, I'll only just finish up. So basically what I'm trying to say is that the Rabbis, the rabbis are using, or a mudic author, are using monastic popular tradition to reshape Rashbi's Yerushalmi tradition into a monastic-like character. Again, totally rabbinizing him, bringing another person in to study Torah, he becomes a better Torah scholar at the end, that's the point. But the way the Torah, the story is told, is using monastic character. Now, if I'm right, then it means that the rabbis had access to the popular tradition. They knew a lot about the Christian, had no problem using that. There's no sign here that this is anything Christian. They had no problem using this material to rework the story. That's interesting in itself, right? But I want to ask the question, why would they do that specifically about Rashbi And the reason that they're doing it about Rashbi is because rabbis don't go into caves, ever. It's not something that rabbis do. The only rabbi we have that's hiding in a cave is Rashbi Probably because he was hiding from the Romans in the Ba'khoch revolt. So we have one story about rabbi. So this is why they would do it on this specific story. But remember how I said there's no caves in Morinic literature? Mm-hmm. There's one more rabbi who goes into a cave. I don't have time to talk about this. I'll just briefly mention what it is. This is the last uh, source on your handout. Mm-hmm. This is found in the Palestinian Talmud. And here we have a story about Yudah Hutzah. And the Yerushani tells us he went into a cave for three days trying to figure out how Lachik question. That has to do with charity. He comes out of the cave and he hasn't found an answer. And he goes to the rabbis and says, you know, I sat in the cave for three days, couldn't find an answer. And the rabbis gets very upset with him and he says, he solved the problem obviously, the halachic problem. And said, you know I didn't find an answer? Because you went alone to a cave. We don't do that. We studied with our friends in the study house. I trying to suggest that this story is also aware of the popular tradition and this offers a whole different view. First, it says that some people found it attractive. Some people thought, "Oh, we should be holy men. We should go on our own and do a thing." And the Rabbi, and the, the Palestinian town would and said, "Uh huh, no, 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 no. We don't do that. We don't do the holy men thing. We sit in Kabuta. We study together." And that's another reaction, again, reacting to popular tradition of bad monastic holy men, finding it attractive. And the Ushami gives us a whole different avenue with saying. As opposed to the Babis, it says, oh, that's interesting. Let's use that to rethink some of the stuff that we're doing. The Lushani presents a whole different thing and says, no, we don't do that. And comes out against it. Quickly, turn to the other page. A little self promoting. The last page has the opening of my book, Early Kishim and of Babylonian Talmud. A boring name. I wanted to call it Talmudic Months and Cambridge was like, oh, it has to be a boring type. Whatever. But why did I bring this? I'm talking about this and the Monastic Avenue, and basically I try to open a whole new vista for the study of Talmudic literature. Saying, guys, we have to learn the Talmud in light of its time. That's it. We can no longer learn it separately. We have to put those texts side by side because we're missing a huge chunk of the knowledge they had in their hands, and we have to understand what they're doing. And this allows us to talk about common themes. But look at what the, 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 um, the picture that I, I chose for the cover of my book. I have a friend from the art department that helped me figure it out. This is from a 13th century Bible called Bible Moralice. This was done for the uh, French king. And it's beautiful uh, Bible. In one of the corner, I, said, I, I asked her, what can I find rabbis and monks to put on my book? That's going to be a hard one. And she finds this one. This is, as you can see, look at, look careful. What do we have here? We have on the one side we see monks. See how they have like uh, long robes right, and, like, yeah. uh, and, and their head is shaved. Right. And the other side they are Jews. And the reason I know that they're Jews is because they have the pointy hands. That's a very Jewish-y stereotypical thing in the ancient world, right? And look what they're doing. They're arguing and talking over a book that's in the middle, right? And look at the look at the faces of the Jew. On the one hand, his body turns towards the Christian over the book. On the other hand, his face is turned away. The whole body conveying this like mixed message of talking and rejection. And ex- I saw that and I'm like perfect. Wow! I couldn't yeah. ask for a better picture than that. Really trying to signal the the complexity of the relationship they had. They knew what the Christian were reading. They, they were familiar with that their access to the sources are much bigger than we used to think but it's more complex than that we can't just focus on the issues such as Jesus and its immaculate conception it's not just about that it's about asceticism, it's about prayer it's about the tension between work and study it's about um, seclusion, it's about fasting, it's about a lot of charity it's about a lot of issues that Jews and Christians had in common then and now but they used whatever was in their disposal to rethink those things and they're doing that while they're in contact with you know, neighboring communities. And it's time for us. And again, I, I think when, if, you, if you meet in 10 years and I give a talk, I think we'll be in a different place because scholarship is just now starting to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing a book about meaning stories, heretic stories in the Bible that I try to read a lot of Christian interpretation. And other scholars, not a lot, but a few scholars are trying to do the same thing. And I think we're going to, in 10 years, we'll be in a different spot because we're just starting to look at those sources and say, wait, what did they know? And we shouldn't just look at Jesus in the Talmud. We should look much wider, cast a wider net. And say, how did the Jews think about those issues when they had the tools of their neighbors? How did they react? Not always polemically, they're thinking a lot of, about a lot of things similarly. And some things differently. And how did they adapt and how did they change those traditions? So, in conclusion, Jews and Christians in the ancient world? Complicated.